All right, thank you, Bert. Thank you, Gene Ellen. Excellent job as always. Uh, if you haven't turned there already, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. Obviously anticipating me, I'm sure, many of you. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. <clears throat> as you can see on the board in the second session, we'll be noting Habakkuk 3, 7, which teaches us that the people of Midian will experience ang uh, distress and anguish at Jesus Christ's second advent. So uh, we're, getting, we're continuing to track the movements of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, during his second advent, which uh, ends the tribulation period, the 70th week of Daniel, and simultaneously uh, the times of the Gentiles that we're currently involved with at this time in history. So uh, let's, uh, as we always uh, do before the second session, we're not only, not only pray for the, this second session and our study of Habakkuk 3.7, but also we're going to pray for the offering. So with that in mind, with our heads bow and our eyes closed, let us pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for the great honor and privilege that you've given to us to reflect our, express our love toward you for what you've done in the past through your Son and the Spirit are doing for us now and will do for us in the future and the logistical grace blessings and the temporal blessings that we have and the, the freedoms that we have and all the wonderful things that we have, homes and, uh, and, 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 and businesses and whatnot, all the things that you've given to us as trusts. And uh, so we know that uh, all the wealth of the world is yours, and right now we'd like to express our love for you by reciprocating. And uh, we offer this uh, uh, offering, this love gift up to you in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, uh, without whom we are nothing. And we know that we're in union with your son, so when we do this, we know we're full, fully cognizant of the fact that we're seated at your right hand. And, uh, the, and members of the bride of Christ, the future bride of Christ, members of the body of Christ, when we present this offering to you as a token of our appreciation and love and reflection of our love to you, for you and your son, Jesus Christ, and the Holy Spirit. I also pray for this uh, particular lesson, Father, as we go into Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7. And I just pray that you would be with each person mightily, and I pray that you would uh, help me again, as you did in the first session, to deliver your full counsel to your people. Help me to... Uh, bring out uh, this passage and all that it, it meant for the original audience and, and the implications for us here in the church age. And I just pray, Father, this study will be a great blessing and encouragement to your people as we go through different trials and tribulations here in the devil's world. I pray that you would help your people in the audience to learn, understand what's being taught, make application, to concentrate, to, to uh, break down any barriers, again, that sin and Satan might put up with a hint of that from happening. And uh, I just pray, Father, that... Uh, We'll prayerfully consider the passages and principles that we'll be noting here uh, this morning. And uh, I pray that as a result, all of us, in the, through the study of Habakkuk 3.7, uh, will continue to grow in the grace and knowledge of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, and will be motivated to live the spiritual life, to keep, to keep short accounts with you, confess our sins, and make the Word of God and obedience to it a priority in our lives so that we can bring glory to you in the angelic conflict and be an invisible hero with an invisible impact on this, our neighborhoods, our families, our country, uh, the world, and in the angelic realm. So, Father, we pray for this in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Amen. You should be at Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1. Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, as we did uh, in the... Um, let me just switch my, uh, my lesson here around. Well, that's happening. Go to Habakkuk chapter three, verse one. As we did in the um, in the first session, we read the whole. Ch we'll read the whole chapter. Even though verse seven of Habakkuk chapter three is our passage, the reason why we do this, and I always like to reiterate this because uh, some of you get it right off the bat, some of you don't, and it, so that's my job is to repeat so you get it and get inculcated with it. Uh, you know, if in the, in the military, uh, when you're in the military, you know, they, you, you, they, there's a lot of repetition. It's how you learn things. <clears throat> when I played sports, a lot of repetition. You can't become a good baseball player if you don't take, you know, swing the bat and take a lot of batting practice. You can't be a good field if you don't do play some pepper, you know, and, and take ground balls and 100 ground balls or whatever it is. So you get good at, through repetition, and you want it to be second nature because in the military, you know, you read. I like to watch these old interviews of these guys who were in World War II and D-Day, and some of them are absolutely, absolutely amazing. And they just said, well, we just, when we got to hit the beach, you know, it was like, well, our training kicked in. 
You know, so guys who've seen combat, they remember their training, and it's second nature. They're not even thinking about it, they just do what they've been trained to do. And so that's what God wants us to be like when it comes to his word. When we get adversity, we are gonna run into it. We need to be ready, and we want it to be second nature that we just jump right into what our training was in the word of God by our pastor teacher. And so, who in, a, in, in one sense, I'm, I'm like a spiritual combat leader, in another sense, I'm, 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 I'm an I'm overseer, I'm, a, I'm supposed to take care of the flock of God, I'm a shepherd, and so there's a lot of ways that a, a pastor is to reflect what he's supposed to do, the Lord has given, the job he's given him to do. So, we're going to read the whole chapter, and then look at verse 7 in detail for the rest of the class, which is going to take us to some other passages in the Old Testament, namely, uh, primarily, uh, Isaiah chapter 63, verses 1 through 3, which we studied when we looked at verse 3 of this same chapter. So Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 1, <clears throat> a prayer of Habakkuk the prophet, Anshagayanam, Lord, I have heard your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. Renew them in our day. In our time, make them known. In wrath, remember mercy. Now we have the beginning of the Divine Warrior Psalm, verses 3 through 15. It's uh, basically prophetic poetry with allusions to the Old Testament feats of God in the Old Testament uh, with the nation of Israel. God came from Teman, and of course, in context, it's Jesus Christ as we're referring to. He's the Holy One that comes from Mount Paran, and these two places were in a place called Edom. We saw this in Obadiah. We referenced it that. We see that Basra was in Edom. That's now today called the Kingdom of Jordan. Jesus Christ will be making his movements, military movements at the second advent in the region of the Kingdom of Jordan, not just Jerusalem. So it says at the end of that, God came from Teman, the Holy One from Mount Paran, Selah. His glory covered the heavens. His praise filled the earth. His splendor was like the sunrise. Rays flashed from his hand where his power was hidden. Plague went before him. Pestilence followed his steps. He stood and shook the earth, and he looked and made the nations tremble. The ancient mountains crumbled, and the age-old hills collapsed. His ways are eternal, though, as we saw ancient processions follow him. I saw the tents of Cushion in distress, the dwellings of Midian in anguish. Were you angry with the rivers, O Lord? Was your wrath against the streams? Did you rage against the sea when you rode with your horses and your victorious chariots? You uncovered your bow. You called for many arrows, Selah. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. Torrents of water swept by, and the deep roared and lifted its waves on high. Sun and moon stood still in the heavens at the glint of your flying arrows, at the lightning of your flashing spear. In wrath you strode through the earth, and in anger you threshed the nations. You came out to deliver your people, to save your anointed one. You crushed the leader of the land of wickedness. You stripped him from head to foot, Selah. With his own spear, you pierced his head when his warriors stormed out to scatter us, the Jews at the time of the second, uh, second advent, gloating as though about to devour and the wretched who are in hiding. Verse 15, you trampled the sea with your horses, churning the great waters. That's the end of the great divine warriors song, which is primarily prophetic with, again, allusions to God's feats and the feats on behalf of the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. Now we have Habakkuk giving his response to the revelation that's been given to him in this book up to this time. It says in verse 16, I heard and my heart pounded, my lips quivered at the sound, decay crept into my bones and let my legs tremble. Yet I will wait patiently for the day of calamity to come on the nation invading us, the Babylonians, and they will be judged by God as we saw in Acts chapter 2. Excuse me, Habakkuk chapter 2. So then it says in verse 17, Though the fig tree does not bud because of the Babylonian invasions, this will be the case, and there are no grapes on the vine, though the olive crop fails, and the fields produce no food, though there are no sheep in the pen and no cattle in the stalls, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will be joyful in God my Savior. The sovereign Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the feet of a deer. He enables me to go on the heights, expressing the personal relationship that he has with God, and that's what God wants from each one of us. He doesn't want you to know him theoretically. He doesn't want you to know him academically solely, though there's academics involved and academic discipline and involved in learning about the ways, the Lord and his ways, but he wants this to be an experiential knowledge. See, God, through the ministry of the Holy Spirit, when we obey what he's teaching us and have faith in what he's teaching us, we are personally encountering the triune God. And remember, it says in John 17, uh, John 17, 3, in the room, the Lord in his upper room discourse, and he said uh, in, uh, in his great high priestly prayer, he prayed, Father, that they may know eternal life. And this is eternal life, that they know you, know you in a experiential sense. What does that mean? Personally encountering the triune God through obedience to his word, the process of fellowship. 
which will result in more practical wisdom to live our lives and more of the character of Christ. So then he says at the end of it, the whole book, he says, and this is telling us that he was a songwriter because he's writing lyrics to a song and he actually uh, wanted it played to a certain style of music, genre of music, which is not known to, it, known to us, lost to history. For the director of music on my stringed instruments. Uh, a translation of Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7 on the board. I see the people living in the tents belonging to the land of Cushion, experiencing distress. The people living behind the tent curtains belonging to the land of Midian will be in anguish. So, as we noted in our study of Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 6, Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 20 is a prayer which the prophet Habakkuk offered up to the God of Israel, which he directed in the, to be sung in the temple as part of the worship of the God of Israel. And in this prayer is the divine warrior psalm, prophetic uh, uh, statements, uh, po poetry, with regards to the tribulation period and the second advent of Jesus Christ, primarily the second advent of Christ. So we also noted in a, verses 3 through 6 that Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 through 15, again, is not only prophetic, referring to the events of the 70th week of Daniel in the second advent of Christ, but are also alluding to the mighty acts of God which he performed on behalf of the nation of Israel and past history, such as during Israel's exodus from Egypt under Moses. Now, as we noted also in detail in our study of Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3, I adhere to the eschatological or prophetic interpretation of verses 3 through 15. And I gave my reasons why, and I spent a whole class, because it's very, very important. So, we see that, uh, as I pointed out to you, I have a prophetic interpretation of verses 3 through 15 in the sense that I interpret these verses as being fulfilled in the future, during the 70th week of Daniel, and the second advent of Jesus Christ. And uh, let me see if I can give you this uh, chart on the board. I've been, I note it in our Day of the Lord series. I wasn't going to use it today, but I think I'm going to show you today. Uh, a little bit from it. Oh, that's not what I wanted. Okay, we'll blow that out. Let me just get my P, uh, PDF for it. The chart I use for the Day of the Lord says, I used it here a couple of weeks ago, maybe last week, I can't remember. Every day is the same to me when you get to be this age on the back nine. So Daniel 70 weeks, okay? It's 490 prophetic years, Daniel 9, 24 through 27. So we see that 483 of these years, have been, which is actually equivalent to 69 of these weeks, uh, have been fulfilled in history. And uh, so we saw that in Daniel 9.25. Daniel 9.26, three prophetic events have been fulfilled there. Uh, the crucifixion of Christ, the destruction of the temple in Jerusalem, and the city of Jerusalem, all predicted in Daniel 9.26. That was done by the Romans in 70 AD. Now, we are in the church age, which is uh, taking place, and so was the cross and the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple in 70 AD, taken, it took place after the completion of the 483 prophetic years, which again is equivalent in this prophecy to 69 of these weeks. Now, we're just, we're in an age that's preceding the second, uh, 70th week of Daniel, which begins with Antichrist making a treaty with the leadership of Israel. That's noted in Daniel 9.27. That's all prophetic. We have never seen anything in history that uh, corresponds to what we have being said in Daniel 9.27. And so in the, we see that in the middle of the 70th week, and remember this is the Jewish reckoning of time, a 360-day calendar. And we see at three and a half years, 1,260 days, four, uh, was it four months, into this treaty, he breaks the treaty with two abominations, as we pointed out. The abomination of uh, the Antichrist sitting in the rebuilt Jewish, Jewish temple. They have the plans to do it now. And it's going to be where that dome of the rock is, more than likely. I don't know how that's going to happen, but it'll work. God, you'll see God will pull, pull it off, as he always does. And nobody thought the nation of Israel would be back in the land after 2,000 years, and that's what happened in 1948 now. So, so I don't think it's that difficult for God. So then you have, uh, he, 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 Paul mentions this in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 2 and 3, that the Antichrist will sit down in the rebuilt Jewish temple between the, Ark of the, the cherub and the Ark of the Covenant and declare himself God. There's another one, Revelation 13. Also, the Lord alludes to this in Matthew 24 in his Olivet Discourse, that the, anti, the false prophet who promotes the worship of the Antichrist, but like, like the Holy Spirit promotes the worship of Jesus Christ, he is going to build an image of the Antichrist, make it come to life, and, and cause the world to worship it. That is the one, Jesus said, he alludes to in, in the Olivet Discourse in Matthew 24. And he actually follows the prophetic outline of this 70 weeks prophecy 
in the 70th week, in Daniel 9.27, in his Olivet Discourse. He mentions this abomination, okay? That is when the Armageddon campaign begins, the war to end all wars. They thought World War I was that, no. They're the worst, and there's a, we thought the persecution of the Jewish people is over with Hitler, no. One more persecution's coming, one more dispersion from the land of the nation of Israel, and it'll be an inside job because he will come as a, a friend of Israel, but he's the great antichrist, he's the great deceiver, and he actually has access to the temple, he probably helps them build it, he has access to Jer Jerusalem with his armies, and remember, the United States is nowhere found in prophecy, the United States is nowhere found in prophecy, and the rapture of the church, if it happens in our generation, or the next one, it'll decimate America and our military, which has a lot of Christians in it, will be a shell of itself. And so, therefore, the greatest benefactor of the nation of Israel will have been gone from the face of the earth in just a blink of an eye. And so, who's she going to turn to? The United States of Europe. Humpty Dumpty will get back together again. God will see to it. We see the final stage of the Roman Empire. They've been trying to bring the Roman Empire together for centuries. Charlemagne, Hitler, Napoleon, they've all been trying to do it. They've been failing. Fail, 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 fail. But we'll see once the church is gone, as Paul says in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, that when the, the spirit who indwells the church is removed and restrains evil through us, the spirit does, during the church age, when we are removed at the rapture, now Antichrist can appear. Now Antichrist can appear. And so he makes this treaty, and he breaks the treaty three and a half years into it, and then, then we have the Armageddon campaign, and we have the seven seal trumpet and bold judgments of Revelation 6 through 18. We have, we have the Satan and the fallen angels are thrown out of heaven by Michael the elect angels, according to Revelation chapter 12, at, corresponding with the Antichrist breaking this treaty. So you have the wrath of the Lamb, Jesus, and the wrath of Satan on the earth. And you, as a member of the Bride of Christ, remember Jesus is not a wife beater, you are not going to go through the wrath of God during the tribulation period. Paul says this. 1 Thessalonians 5.9, you are delivered from the wrath to come. You and I have been appointed to, uh, to be perfected our salvation in a resurrection body, to obtain salvation, which is talking about the perfective aspect of our salvation, completed in a perfected in a resurrection body. So we're not going to go through all that. We're the bride of Christ. But in the second advent, we come back with her, him. Uh, Revelation 19 makes that clear. The wedding, of the, 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 wedding the marriage of the Lamb, is in heaven. And the wedding supper is going to be on earth during the millennial reign. So if you like to party and you won't be getting drunk, you'll be a good boy and good girl, you'll, have, you'll be able to drink responsibly and eat responsibly, not overeat, because in a resurrection body, all the sin nature's gone. So you don't have to worry about that. So we have, this is the setting, the 70th week of Daniel, is the setting that we have here in Habakkuk chapter 3, verses 3 to 15. So in Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7, it contains two solemn prophetic statements. In the first, Habakkuk asserts that he sees in a vision the people living in the tents belonging to the land of Cushion experiencing distress, while the second asserts that the people behind the tent curtains belonging to the land of Midian will be in anguish. As we'll see, it's actually talking about the same group of people because of the parallel structure of the passage. The, the reference to the tents and tent curtains in these two prophetic statements indicates that Habakkuk is speaking of a nomadic people. The Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible, and actually it stands as the oldest witness to the original Hebrew and Aramaic autographs in the Old Testament. The Septuagint understood, and by the way, the Septuagint was the, the, the Old Testament Bible for the Gentile churches and pretty much the Jewish church too. Jewish portion of the church. Because the Jews, after they came back from Babylon, they, then the, we had the, the rise of the Roman em, uh, Greek uh, Empire with Alexander the Great, and you got Koine Greek became the world's, the tongue that everybody uh, spoke. And so it was the primary, it was like English is in the world today, and business and everything. So we see that they lost, the Jews actually lost the abilities, a lot of them speak Hebrew and Aramaic. So Greek was pretty big. So we see that the Septuagint was actually of the Old Testament of the early church. So the Septuagint understood the word Kushan to refer to Ethiopia, which in the Old Testament times was Cush. Now, however, 
and this is another little bit of issue that we need to talk about, who the identification of these people. However, this because this word, Kushan, is parallel here in Habakkuk 3.7 with the proper noun Midian, Midian, excuse me, Midian, yeah, it's pronounced Midian. Most scholars believe that the word Kushan uh, refers to the Kushan that was near Midian, which was located in the desert east of the Sinai Peninsula. Now, the parallel structure is going to help us. The language of the, the passage is going to tell us, help us with the identification of who the referent is here. The parallel position of Cushion to the land of Midian here in Habakkuk 3.7 seems to indicate that Cushion was actually located geographically in the vicinity of Edom and Midian, which would be south and southeast of the Dead Sea. I'll show you a map in a moment to where, specifically, where it would reside. I believe that Cushion is synonymous with Midian because of the parallel structure of the two prophetic statements. And also because both statements speak of the people located in Cushion and Midian living in tents, and both are described as suffering mentally. So remember, this is poetic, there's lyrics, it's, it's got a, a parallel poetry, in Hebrew poetry, you have parallelism, and this is one of the indications that's telling us that when he's talking about the Midianites or the Cushites, he's talking about the same group of people. And I'm going to show, I'll track it to you for you in the scriptures to, uh, to uh, confirm that. So the proper word Midian, Midian, uh, it speaks of the area east of the Jordan and south of Edom. Later, historians located the land of Midian in northwest Western Arabia, east of the Gulf of Aqaba. Again, I'll be showing you a map of this. Now, the Midianites des descended from Abraham through Keturah, according to Genesis chapter 25, verse 2, and 1 Chronicles chapter 1, verses, verse, 30, uh, verse 32. Uh, remember, Abraham was married twice. After he had uh, Sarah, and he had, you know, the, he was the progenitor of the nation of Israel. You know, he had Isaac, and then Isaac and Rebekah had Jacob and Esau, right? And then they, they had, through uh, Jacob, who got his name changed to Israel, the 12 sons of it, J uh, Jacob, the, son, uh, it, uh, the Israelites, and they became the nation of Israel, okay? But when she, when she died, he remarried, which is absolutely astonishing, and he had six boys with Keturah. And we have one branch, along with the other branches, the, the Ishmaelites through uh, Hagar, that, that Abraham had uh, sex with Hagar at the instigation of Sarah. That was not a very good move. But uh, we see Ishmael is one branch of the Arabs through Abraham, and the other branch is through Keturah. So as an old man, remember he was like 100 years old when he had Isaac, okay? And she was, they, they were both sexually dead, past having a procreation, and they were able to, I don't know, God gave him, the, obviously, the, the miraculous ability to have sexual intercourse again. And, you know, there you go. And then next thing you know, they're playing, you know, well, uh, what do they call it? Um, the Marvin Gaye song, uh, you know. But they, they, did you know that? They were playing Marvin Gaye when they, you know, a little love song, and they would dance. And, and next thing you know, they're having sexual intercourse. And boom, there's a baby. And then, well, I can't believe it. I'm old. And I, have, I mean, just imagine that, you know. It, you're 100 years old, and you have a, you have a little baby boy. I just, that's and then, what's even more amazing, after he has them in his old age, she dies, and he goes on having more sex with Keturah. He has more kids. Talk about the power of God, right? So, you old guys, there's still hope. Okay, you never know. So, Midian was the... I'm being funny. Midian was the fourth, that's Massachusetts for you. Midian was the fourth son of this union, and the name Midian means strife. Okay, it means strife for whatever it's worth. Now, Genesis 25.4 records that Ephah, Ephah, Hanuk, Abida, and Elda'ah were sons of Midian. Say that real fast. The descendants of Midian were a well-known Arabian tribe, and they traded in gold and incense according to Isaiah 60, verse 6, Genesis chapter 37, verse 25 and 28, and they and did this from Moab, to Sinai and Ephah, according to Numbers 22.4 and Judges chapter 6, uh, verse, uh, chapter 6 to 8, actually. Now, the first wife of Moses, Zephorah, was a Midianite, and her brother, Hobab, guided Israel through the steppe of Sinai, according to Numbers chapter 10. And later, Midianites, in association with the Moabites, their progenitors were interesting, the Moabites, they fought Israel according to Numbers chapter 25 and 31. And Gideon, and that great passage in Judges 7 and 8, those chapters, Gideon drove them, the Midianites, out of Israel. Joseph was sold to the Midianites 
who intermarried with the descendants of Ishmael, according to Genesis chapter 37, verse 28. And then we see that the names Ishmaelites and Midianites in Genesis 37, 25, 27, 28, 36, and Genesis 39, 1 are synonymous terms. How do we know that? Well, it's confirmed by Judges 8, 24, which says of the Midianites that they had golden earrings because they were Ishmaelites. Evidently, evidently, the descendants of Ishmael and Midian intermarried. You can see Genesis 25, 2 for that, 17 and 18, and 29, 9 of that book. And the reason why? Because both were descended from Abraham. Ishmael's mother was Hagar, and Midian's was Keturah. So, what's interesting, Abraham, remember God said, I'll make your name great? Oh, it's great, all right. You go to the Christians, Romans 4, he's the father of our faith. He's the, he's the father of the Arabs. Two Arabs, the Ishmaelites, and, the, and, the, and, the, uh, and uh, we see that, uh, that you know, the, the children to Keturah. So he has two branches of the Arabs are from him. So the, in the Arab world, he's a giant. He's a father, okay? And then we have the Jews. He's the progenitor of the nation of Israel. He started it all off. He was the grandfather of, of uh, Jacob, who got his name changed to, by God to Israel. So we see that the use of these two terms in Genesis 37 indicates that the term Ishmaelite was a generic term or general designation for nomadic traders or desert tribes, we could say, whereas Midianite indicates a specific ethnic affiliation. Or in other words, the term Midianites in Genesis 37 refers to a specific ethnic affiliation among the league of desert tribes or nomadic traders known by the generic use of the term Ishmaelites. The Midianites occupy portions of the central and northern southern Sinai Peninsula in addition to their primary location, which was in northwestern Arabia. Thus, they were found in Moses' day from the Arabian Gulf in the south to the plains of Moab in the north. It must be emphasized also that there were no fixed boundaries, as we know today, for these people. The Old Testament describes them as a nomadic people, so it would be foolish to think of fixing a precise location for these people. So, both of these prophetic statements in Habakkuk 3.7 describe what will take place when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to planet Earth at his second advent to establish his millennial reign. However, as we noted earlier, these two statements also allude to the Exodus generation's movements in the region of Midian and Cushion. The nations that were located between Egypt and Canaan were Cushion and Midian who lived near Edom. As the news of the God of Israel, delivering the Israelites from Egypt. He destroyed the nation of Egypt. He destroyed them. A book we're going to do, Lord willing, in the future, the book of Exodus. He destroyed them. That's, that would be like Russia or China, the United States, being wiped off, wiped out, just totally decimated by those plagues. Okay? So the news traveled. They didn't have the internet. They didn't have television or radio. They didn't have any of that. But they had these traders these nomadic traders, they would carry news to other parts of the world. And as the news of the God of Israel delivering the Israelites from Egypt and destroying Egypt and its armies, the people of Midian and Cushion were obviously terrified and lived in fear of their lives. Other nations also lived in fear of Israel and her God. We know that from Exodus 15, verses 14 through 16. Deuteronomy 2.25 tells us that, and so does Joshua 2.9 and 5.1. So these two prophetic statements that we read about in Habakkuk 3.7 are related to the second prophetic statement that is recorded in Habakkuk 3.6, which asserts that when the Lord Jesus Christ returns to earth at his second advent, he will strike them with great fear when he merely looks at them. Of course, his enemies are those who will be trembling with fear, mourning at his presence when he looks at them to destroy them. So let me give you a map on the board of this particular place, this region we're talking about, uh, the, with Midian and Cushion. Just get this out of here. All right, hopefully you can see this all right. And let me get uh, my pen here going for you. I have a little bit of astigmatism, so a lot of times when I'm with my computer, I don't even have my glasses on, but if I, you know, so when I'm like reading, I don't need my glasses, that's because I can't see far away. But anyways, so that's why if you see me going like this, and that's what's going on, tough getting old. So here's Midian. So you got Egypt over here, Sinai Peninsula. Well, we all know where that is, right? Here's Egypt over to the left. And then Sinai Peninsula. So we have, remember, Edom, they're up here. 
So you look to the right of the map, there's Midian, that's where the, the cushion, Midian, that's what he's talking about in Habakkuk 3.7. This is the region of the world. Now what's interesting is that Jesus Christ, he comes down from the Mount of Olives, okay? He comes marching down here, okay? And there's Basar and Teman, okay? That is where uh, we have Jesus Christ is tracking his military movements at that time. Let me uh, see if I get it. I might have to get another map here too, but... Uh, yeah, we might do another map. But anyways, so this is where the region of the world that Jesus Christ will be going after he comes down on the Mount of Olives. He starts waging war against Israel's enemies and his enemies, and uh, he's destroying them. And he's really doing it on his own. He's really not doing it with any help. He doesn't need any help. This is the wrath of the Lamb. He's now, I'm personally come to, I'm, try, I'm, do, I'm coming here to get my own revenge. And it's justified. It's the wrath of the Lamb. It's justified. He died for every person in human history so that they wouldn't suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire. And for you to reject that is the worst sin that you could ever commit is the, reject, the blasphemy of the Spirit and rejecting what the gospel says about Jesus, that he died on the cross for you and rose from the dead on the third day. And that whoever believes in him shall never perish but have eternal life. And it's a gift, salvation. You don't earn it or deserve it. And how terrible it will be for people who had walked in the days of Jesus and saw him teach and saw him, saw the miracles and rejected him. It'll be worse for Sodom and Gomorrah than them. Okay? It'll be worse, worse for them than Sodom and Gomorrah, excuse me. Or the, the Bethsaida and Chorazin. It'll be worse for them. They witnessed the miracles of Jesus and it'll be worse for the people today of the world today who reject Jesus because we have the Spirit. We're in union with Christ and we're communicating the gospel and the power of the Spirit about the gospel, the good news that Jesus has died for you. You don't have to suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire. And believing in him, you'll have eternal life and the forgiveness of sins. Woe to them because they received a great light. There are people you've been trying to talk to about Jesus for a long time. Okay? And I have too. Family members outside the family, friends over the years. You are either the greatest thing that ever happened to them or you're going to be the worst thing that ever happened to them. God's word comes back never empty-handed. It's either for judgment or for blessing. What it's going to be for them is up to them to determine because God desires all people to be saved. Unlimited atonement. Christ died for both the elect and the non-elect. That's the depth of God. No one can comprehend that. He died. Christ died for his enemies and for you to reject him. Yes, people go to the lake of fire. I used to have, you know, like everybody, you know, you're worried about family members and stuff. You know what? I, I got over that a long time ago, okay? If a member of my family or a cousin or whatever rejects Jesus, they deserve to suffer the wrath of God in the lake of fire. Do I like that? No, but that's the, you know what? That's just. There's no reason for them to go there. Then my, my, my father or my brothers or my, or my aunt or uncle, they're no, or my friends are no different than anybody else's friends and parents or as brothers or sisters. Think about that. You got to look at, look at things objectively the way God thinks of things. Because so, some people in the church, even scholars, who think that you know, annihilationism is the truth, that there's no suffering the wrath of God in the lake of fire forever, that you just extinguish. You're gone. That's false doctrine. Here's one of the passages that tells you it's that. Matthew 25, Matthew 25, we see that Revelation 19 and 20, the Antichrist and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of fire at the second advent of Christ. When it's Satan's turn to go there, it says in the text of Revelation 20 that the, the beast and the false prophet are still there. Yeah, hell's a real place. older I get, you know, you just talk, tell it like it is. Just don't screw around. Get right to the point when you get an opportunity, okay? Because this is life and death. You and I have a most important job. And you know what's really interesting? Jesus said, love one another as I have loved you. By this, all people know you're my disciples. So when you and I are practicing the command to love one another, which all that involves serving one another, uh, praying for one another, interceding for each other, uh, encouraging one another, rebuking if necessary, and gentleness one another, you're showing the love of God. And the world needs love and wants love, but they're looking in all the wrong places like the country and western song said. You can only find true love with Jesus Christ. Because... 
The, I'm not saying God, uh, human love is a, it's a gift from God. Love for one's country, love for one's children or parents, love between uh, husband and wife. Those are all gifts from God, but there's one love that trumps them all, transcends them all, and that's the love of God, the agape love of God. And that's the love that God wants in our marriages because people will see. You, your marriage can be a testimony to the great love of God, and it might cause somebody who's an unbeliever in your life to believe in them because they see your marriage and how it works. That's right. People are watching you. <clears throat> you know, people think, watch the pastor. Yeah, everybody watches what I do. I can't go anywhere. If they find out I'm a pastor, they watch everywhere. They're like watching everything I do, what I drink, what I smoke. It's unbelievable. It's like, oh, you're like a celebrity all of a sudden. But guess what? You are a celebrity in their eyes, too. If they see you, your marriage is being, how blessed you are in your marriage, how you, you, you work things out, and your children, how you raise your children, and all that. They see that. And they see how you do your job at work as under the Lord. They don't know it's under the Lord, but they see you conscientious in your work. That makes an impact on people. Do not, under, do not underestimate your impact on your, the people in your periphery. Do not underestimate that. God's got you where he wants you to be. Okay? So, the Lord Jesus Christ, he's going to, you know, it's interesting. It says in Revelation, it says in Revelation, chapter 1, verse 7, it teaches that the people of the earth will mourn when the Lord Jesus Christ appears on planet earth at his second advent. And this, is, and this mourning will be that of his enemies because they will experience great fear because of his presence. So therefore, the prophet Habakkuk is predicting in Habakkuk 3.7 that the people of Midian will be experiencing distress and anguish of soul because of the fear that they will experience when the Lord Jesus Christ returns at his second advent to destroy his enemies. Just think of that. Today, Jesus Christ is a swear word to people, a byword on the lips of people. They call this pie in the sky, Jesus coming back. It's fantasy, it's mythology. The Bible is mythology. Let me tell you something, or it's fables, or it's fantasy. Really, let me tell you something. I'll tell you, repeat what C.S. Lewis said, who actually knew this genre, fantasies and all that stuff. He's write stuff like that. The, Bible, the Gospels don't read like that at all. You're not really being honest, academic, academically honest, because if you read those Gospels, they sound like historical accounts, people giving their testimony about the, the Prince of Prince, the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the Prince of Peace. Those don't read like uh, fables or, you know, the Lord of the Rings. Well, Tolkien was definitely introduced, was a Christian and was influenced by that, the Bible. But the Gospels are people's accounts of the testimony of the, about Jesus and his death and resurrection. The Christianity is an historical religion. Islam's not. It's not. In fact, Islam, the Koran, it actually plagiarizes the Bible. I just laugh when I hear my Muhammad Ali used to go quote the Bible. You know, and the other thing is, when you always remember this, and do this in gentleness, I go to my Islamic friends, okay, or someone who's Islamic faith, I would say, you know and I know that Jesus is a prophet for you guys, right? Just like he is for me. I say, yeah. Why don't you believe what he said? Believe in me. No one comes to the Father except through me. He who believes with me will have eternal life. He who doesn't is under the wrath of God. No one comes to the Father except through me. I am the truth, the way, and the life. Okay? What do they say? What can they say? I said, he's either telling the truth, right? Why don't you believe him? Why don't you believe him? And there are many around the world that were of the Islamic faith that are not anymore. Missionaries have talked about this. Maybe the pivot's going to move out there from America. I don't know. So we need to understand something, that the enemies of Jesus, this world, you are surrounded by people who are enemies of Jesus. You know, the politicians with their socialist, socialism and their communism, godless communism, godless socialism, and the godless capitalists. That's right. The godless capitalists in that country exploiting nations and people for power and money. All those people, they're going to have to face the wrath of the Lamb. And it didn't have to be that way. 
because he was making peace with everybody at the cross, and we're the proclaimers of that peace treaty with the human race. But if you don't want to bow to Jesus and be, let him be your savior, then guess what? He's going to be your judge. So, we see Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 7. It forms what we call an hermeneutics, an inclusio. With Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 3, because the latter, verse 3, speaks of Teman, which was in Edom and located to the south of Israel. And the former speaks of Midian and Cushion, which were south of Edom. You're probably saying, what in the world is an inclusio? Well, you might have heard it in, in, other, uh, in, in college. But inclusio, it's a literary device which in the end, in the beginning of a passage, are similar, thus sandwiching the rest. Uh, let me give you another definition. It's a literary technique used to indicate the boundaries of a literary unit by beginning and ending it with the same or parallel terms. So again, as you see on the board, in Habakkuk 3.7, we have this inclusio. Verse 7 actually forms an inclusio with verse 3. Why? Because verse 3 speaks of Teman, which was in Edom, and located to the south of Israel, and the former... Verse 7 speaks of Midian and Cushion, which were south of Edom. Go now. we got, we, we got to quickly uh, wrap this up. But go to Isaiah 63. While you're turning there, I can find that map I'm looking for. Isaiah 63. Look at verse 1. Isaiah 63, verse 1. Okay. Isaiah 63, look at verse 1. Who is this coming from Edom, from Basra? Okay, Edom is the, what we know as the kingdom of Jordan. Basra is one of the big cities there. In fact, I think, was that map, have, do I have that on the map here? Yeah, okay. Good for you. All right. Draw on my map. Where's my thing? Draw the thing. Okay, here we go. Here's Edom. And here's Basra. If you keep going up north, you got Moab, okay? Let me just bring this up, okay? Here we go. Keep going, keep going, keep going, keep going. See a Galilee, okay? Okay, go up there. You got into Israel, okay? So it says in Isaiah 63, verse 1, who is this coming from Edom? From Basra. With his garments... Stained crimson. Who is this? Robed in splendor. Striding forward. It actually means marching. And the greatness of his strength. You know, everybody, you look at the movies, everybody's looking for heroes. That's why the great movies of the past, we love the great heroes, the Gary Coopers, the John Waynes, you know, the Clint Eastwoods, he's kind of anti-hero guy, but... You know, you have people who are heroes, you know. We want heroes. We love heroes. The MacArthur's and the, and the, and the World War II guys and, and, the, and, the, and the Schwarzkopf and, the, and, the, and Pattons and throughout history, you know, all these great, great leaders and great heroes that we love, okay? And we all want a hero, okay? But all our heroes are flawed, aren't they? All our heroes, are, they're human like us. They, they, they have their failures too. And one of the things you heard is, is you like, you know, how, how screwed up your, your hero was you know, after they die, you know, what, what a mess they made of their life, or how unhappy they were. It bothers us, because we want our heroes, okay? Well, like me, you probably learned a long time ago, that you know what? If you, if you, if you have idols, they'll, just, they'll let you down. But there's one true hero, and I found him, and like many of you, to never ever have let me down. People have betrayed me, people have hurt me, all kinds of stuff have happened. At the end of the day, I always had my savior there for me. He never ever left me or forsake me, never. When everybody was gone, he was there. And he's never left me and he'll never left me and he'll never leave you either. Many of you know the same things, but I'm telling you, he's the true hero. 
He's the one you want to follow. He's the one who will never let you down. He's the one striding in the forward, marching forward in the greatness of his omnipotence, his strength. Who is this? It is I, speaking in righteousness, mighty to save. Do you know, at the second advent, many, the majority of Jewish people, today over there, 99.9% of them are all unsaved, okay? Like many in America. During the first advent, only a small minority believed in Jesus. The rest crucified him, okay? At the second advent, it's a totally different story. We have the new, the regeneration of the nation of Israel. They get born again. You know what event causes that? The second advent. You know what the second advent's called in scripture? The day of atonement. A national mourning over the son, over the, over the greatest Jew of all time that they crucified. And they'll tr believe in him. Because, like many of us, they bet on, they worship the wrong gods. They worship the wrong god, they worship <laughs> idols, and they in Israel will worship the wrong god with the Antichrist. And they'll finally learn their lesson, and there'll be a national regeneration of Israel. They'll turn to Jesus, the one their forefathers crucified, and vilified, and called it as one possessing a demon. They'll turn to him and trust in him, and it'll be one of the most magnificent moments in history. He will save them at his second advent. And many Gentiles will believe in Jesus as well. Why are your garments red, they'll ask him at that time like those of one treading the wine press. Here is his chilling answer. I have trodden the wine press alone. I don't need any elect angels. I don't need my bride, the church. I don't need Old Testament saints. I don't need David. I am. I am the king of kings and the lord of lords. And they actually, in the, in the Hebrew genitive of subordination, the king ruling over kings and lord ruling over lords. There's only one name in the church that should be elevated, and that's Jesus Christ. I've trodden the winepress alone. From the nations, no one was with me. I trampled them in my anger. And when Jesus is expressing his anger, like he did in the temple, when they were making it a den of thieves, he threw them out, made a whip of cords, and threw those boys out. And he was angry, and he was right to do that. My father, is a, his house is a house of prayer, and you're making it a den of thieves. That's why when we had the little people, oh, these, the vagrants out here. One day I come out, I came over here, and I said, they got drug and alcoholics sitting over here, and he had the needles over here. I threw those son of a guns out. Don't you ever do that. We worship Jesus here, I said. Get out of here. You know what? They see me, and they... I'm not your little guy that you can sit there and push around. I'm, I'm, I'm mad. When I get mad, and that ticked me off, that you're doing, you're doing your drugs back here, and you're sleeping it off, and you're drunk as a skunk, and you get your beer bottles, and you sit there denying that you had done that. You're making me angry, and I'm right to be angry, because this is the place where we worship Jesus. Go to the park or somewhere. Go to the railroad tracks. Okay, do something. Get away from this place. If you want to stay here, I'll, serve, I'll give you the gospel, and we'll feed you too. Sally will give you cupcakes or something. But the main reason you need to be here is you need eternal life and straighten your life out. Righteous indignation of God. This is what he says, I'll trod them down in my wrath. My legitimate anger to sin. Their blood spattered my garments and I stained all my clothing. For the day of vengeance was in my heart. And the year of my redemption has come. I looked, but there was no one to help. I was appalled that no one gave support. So my own arm, my own power, my own omnipotence worked salvation for me, and my own wrath sustained me. I trampled the nations, America, Russia, China, Egypt, Ethiopia, Pakistan, India, China, Japan, Korea's, North, South Korea, all going down. I'm, unless you bow to the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords and trust him as your Savior. 
you're going to suffer his wrath. I trampled the nations in my anger, and in my wrath, I made them drunk and poured their blood on the ground. You know what, the cup of wrath, he's saying, I'm making them drunk from the cup of my righteous indignation. That's what this world has coming to it. That's what this country has coming to it if they don't wake up. That's why we need to pray fervently for our nation, and especially this upcoming election. This is not good, okay? I don't see it ending well. This is what the America needs to hear. This is what China and Russia needs to hear. Every nation in the face of this earth needs to hear this. Because he, <laughs> look at this. Look at this, this is an unbelievable passage. Go to Psalm chapter 2. Look at verse 1. Hurry. Let's go. Psalm 2, verse 1. Hey, I can keep you here. We don't have to go out in a snowstorm. You can stay here for three days. We'll just bring in pizzas, okay? And then we'll do a little, we're going to do a little music here. Me and Bud have been working on I Saw the Light on the Piano. You know, we're going to do a little bit of that. And I'll do a little Jerry Lee Lewis, you know. <clears throat> Psalm chapter, not that I could. Psalm chapter 2, look at verse 1. You know, the Word of God, it's got a message, okay? And depending on who you are, that message will be for you. I mean, he shapes each message God does for the believer, the unbeliever, the faithful believer, the unfaithful believer, the unbeliever who is unrepentant about what he's doing. Yeah, God has a message for the whole world, and it's in the Word of God, the Bible. And he has a message for our nation and Russia and China, every nation on the face of the earth, as I said before. And Psalm chapter 2, verse 1, is just incredible. Look at it, it says, Why do the nations conspire in the people's plot in vain? The king, you say, well, how in the world do the, does the people of this world plot against him? I don't know. What do you think? Murder? Not performing capital punishment for capital crimes like murder and rape? Okay? That's what Jesus Christ said. He said that to Genesis 9. He told Paul that in Romans 13. Peter talks about that. The government is there to exercise criminals, execute criminals, after through a jury of their peers. We see that in our country, so you're rebelling against him. You see the, the gays and the lesbians marching around, gay pride, shoving, just shaking their fists at him. See, we're doing it. Yep, yep, there we go. What about the godless, I said, the godless communism and socialism and capitalism in our country and everybody about their own agenda in the country and nobody about what's good for the country? It's always about me, 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 me in this country. Guess what? They wage war against Jesus. They're plotting in vain against him. That's right. The kings of the earth take their stand, and the rulers gather together against the Lord and against his anointed one. The Lord there is the Father. His anointed one is what? Jesus Christ. Okay? Let us break their chains. This is what the human race is saying under the inspiration, of the, 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 the leadership of the, their God, their father, Satan. This is his world. 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, he's the God of this world. The whole world is under his deception. 1 John 5.19, he deceives the entire world. That's what the devil, that's the ruler of this world. Don't blame God or Jesus Christ for the mess that the world's in. Blame yourselves that are sinners and the devil and his angels. That's why. Let us break their chains, they say, and throw off their fetters. The one enthroned in heaven laughs. The Lord scoffs at them. Then he rebukes them in his anger and terrifies them in his wrath, saying, I have installed my king, Jesus, on Zion, Jerusalem, my holy hill. I will proclaim the decree of the Lord. And he said to me, you are my son. Today I become your father. Ask of me and I will make the nations your inheritance and the ends of the earth your possession. You will rule them with an iron scepter and you will dash them to pieces like pottery. Notice he says, I will make the nations your inheritance. You are in union with Christ. Part of your inheritance as a believer, which Paul talks about in chapter 1 of Ephesians, you're getting this. This is part of your inheritance. Aren't you the bride of Christ? Aren't you going to rule with Christ for a thousand years? The nations belong to you. Of course, they're going to be done over. The overcomers of the church age, Revelation 2, will have rulership over some of the cities of the world, nations of the world. Who knows? Victoria might be running New York City sometime. Or it could be Kirk. In Miami. That's not a good place for you. I'd send him over to Antarctica. And then, and then you got maybe Henry. 
Maybe Henry's going to be making spaghetti and running the country, uh, running this, the city of uh, Fort Lauderdale. I don't know. Who knows who's going to have what? But that's the promise. The nations of our inheritance. You are somebody. Don't let anybody tell you you're not. You are somebody, not because of anything you've done, but because of who Jesus made you to be and the Spirit and the Father. Then he says, therefore, you kings, be wise, be warned. This is a message to President Biden, President Trump, all that Putin, whatever his name, Zing over in China, how you pronounce his name, him too, everybody. I love to have fun with his name, forgive me. Therefore, you kings, be wise. Be warned, you rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and you be destroyed in your way. For his wrath can flare up in a moment. Blessed are all those, you and I, who take refuge in him. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for this time to study your word. We pray that this lesson will be a great blessing to your people bringing glory to you and your son, Jesus Christ. I pray it would make a big impact on everybody here this morning, what we have just heard the Spirit say to us in the scripture, the completed canon of scripture. We just thank you and praise you for saving us from your wrath through faith in your son. We also thank you and praise you for the fact that one day we're coming back with your son to rule this earth. It's just incredible, Father. So help us to live our lives in a manner consistent with this fact what you've done for us and what you're going to do for us in the future and live godly lives. Reflect the love of God in our actions with each other, in our marriages, in our families, and do our job as under the Lord in our, in, in our jobs and businesses and treating people the way we want to be treated. Let's model the spiritual life. Help us to do this in light of these great things that are coming and live like the, the, the rulers that we really are. In our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, I'll sing you a song and get you out of here.
dismissed. Stay safe, Mr. Stay safe.